0: Sure, so I know we wanted to chat around uh, Lionel Messi um, today, we spoke a little bit about him last week, but uh, the key question with Messi beyond whether he's going to perform on the pitch is how the hell can uh, PSG afford Messi, Neymar, Mbappe, Wijnaldum, you know, a bunch of other top players within their, within their club, so wanted to discuss that today as well as take that onto the conversation of, of financial fair play and, and what it means uh, and what it looks like going forward um, in European football. Uh, but yeah, let's let's start with Messi. Um, so Dan, Messi, you know, you sign him. Everyone loves Messi. Everyone buys a Messi shirt. That's how PSG can afford him under financial fair play. Is that the case? The
1: infamous shirt sales myth, and um, yeah, I think, and uh, it, it's interesting this week because actually I um, put put a quick two minute explainer on on TikTok. If you please know I wasn't dancing or singing as well, Omar, um, and then also just referred people back to blog i did a while back actually on um on this really and i think it's really important to go back to um basics on you know historically that the way that um uh, shirt um manufacturer apparel deals are done with clubs are effectively by way of um an advance really upfront payments and that clubs receive a, a large upfront advance Um, for the ability for then Nike and ID and Puma and Under Armour and others to be able to monetize and and commercialize. And the way that historically things have then worked is, although it can be the case that um, clubs do take upside on sales. So for example, after a certain amount of shirt sales are sold, then um, clubs may take a certain portion, 10 to 20% of net sales. And net sales is an important figure we'll come back to in a little bit. You know, on the whole, and um, those large upfront payments are so that those um, manufacturers can recoup um, the vast majority of that outlay and a lot significantly more um, by way of um, sales. So, you know, it's been suggested to me that you know uh, PSG might have sold upwards of half a million shirts inside a week or so, which I'm I'm not necessarily convinced about. I don't know if the answer is truth, but that's the sort of reporting. Um, you know, it's very likely that Nike have had have paid PSG, a huge upfront uh, amount to be able to sell um, PSG shirts that they will almost take first bite of. And usually only after a certain amount of shirts are sold will PSG rev share off net sales. Now, a few things were put to me like, well, you know, it might be that, that PSG do a, a Nike uh, collaboration or a collaboration with Messi or otherwise yeah it's a little bit difficult t- to some degree because um, obviously Messi isn't with um, Nike full stop he's still with Adi uh, which is one sort of complication but the, you know the other um, element generally is um, well one, one general point is you don't actually know what the counterfactual would be is how many additional shirts are being because of Messi otherwise would they otherwise have been and there's you know, a variety of other points. But the main point that was put to me was, well, you know, actually, the way it really works is that PSG have an agreement that for the shirts that they retail themselves on their own store, they make the vast majority of the money on. Now, I don't know how that PSG-Nike deal works, but I would be hugely shocked if Nike in the negotiation had said, oh, OK, well, for all the shirts that you, PSG, sell on your own store, in your own store, we'll just let you take all of the, the, the net profits, bearing in mind we have effectively paid a huge upfront advanced fee. So, you know, we can go into some figures if necessary, but I think the long and the short of it, if Messi is reported to be on 50 million gross, around 25 million a year net salary, um, it would take millions of shirts sold, um, I think, for PSG to break even, at least on um, uh, on his net salary, never mind uh, gross and never mind, you know, all of the other types of um, performance um, bonuses, etc. But it shouldn't be discounted that, you know, PSG's, I think, shirt sponsor is up at the end of this season. Obviously, that might be a huge, big uplift. There might be new sponsors that can be activated in different ways. So there's going to be a, a, a big marginal advantage to having Messi. The question is how big that advantage and financial advantage would be. Yeah,
0: exactly. There's obviously three main revenue streams in which a football club um, Receives most of their money from excluding transfers, which obviously they can't realize for Messi, at least not in the short term. And um, so the first one is the commercial one, which we're discussing here, in the shirt sales question. I think your point, you know, even forgetting the the kind of the way these deals are structured, the the kind of opportunity cost point around you sign Messi, that just takes away someone who might have bought a Neymar shirt this year or an Mbappe shirt or an Eldor shirt, whatever it was this year. I think kind of stands to reason that the, the effects can only be marginal. The the shirt. The, the commercial deals are certainly are probably the biggest lever. Um, we saw when Ronaldo moved to Juventus, I think um, their Adidas deal shot up. I forget the exact numbers, but it was probably in the region of about fifty percent. Um, so that that is um, you know a, a source of revenue, but you know given the salary we're kind of is being reported, that still wouldn't be necessarily enough to cover a, a messy salary. Um, Match day income, there's only so much you can increase that as that's capped. And, and actually broadcast income, there's only so much of that more that PSG can, can generate as well because they're already finishing top of Ligue 1 each year. There's only so much more money you can generate from that. And they're already reaching the latter stages of the, the Champions League. So there's only so much more money they can generate from that. So I think in my mind, yeah, anyone signing Messi to a degree, anyone signing Ronaldo or any kind of transformative player like that is really a long-term play. It's around creating... Growing your brand, you know, associating yourself as one of the top clubs in the world, associating yourself with the top players, and you know, destination to go to. And long after messi is gone, will there be benefits to people, you know, having that association with the club and, and perhaps supporting the club or wanting to go to CPSG games or buy a league subscription or, or whatever it is? So it, it strikes me that, yeah, there, it, there's no simple maths that can be done on you know, sign Messi, revenues increase by X. It's it's a lot more, a lot more complicated than that. And the last point, actually, on, on the broadcast revenues, I think most of Liga's broadcast deals are up in 2024, so still three years away, which is when, which is probably long after Messi's left at to, to MLS. So um, I think, um, yeah, there's, there's only limited short-term upside for, for PSG, but potentially uh, long-term. Um, but I wanted to get on to, obviously, this brings a question of FFP, if, if um, you know, PSG aren't going to make their revenue soar off the back of, of Messi deal, how how do they kind of comply with FFP and and also what, what are some of the kind of discussions happening at the moment with respect to FFP, particularly given given the pandemic?
1: Well, it's a great one because we were we were chatting previously, and weren't we about um, what we think you know PSG's summer transfer activity adds to their you know wage bottom line um, on a on a weekly basis, and you know I was doing really some very very basic. Um, back of a fag packet calculations and if, if Messi is adding a million gross himself and the other four or five, Wijnaldum, who's obviously not on insignificant wages on a free, Donomura, um, if I pronoun- can't pronounce, can never pronounce his name right, Hakimi as well, um, Ramos as well on a free, you, you'd have thought conservatively they're probably adding three to three and a half million euros um, per week out of thought, in truth, to the bottom line, um, could be wrong, but you know it's going to it's going to be significant significant money. It's that Wijnaldum and Ramos specifically um, are on, and actually more because he was on a free as well, wasn't he? So, um, three three million euros per week um, in addition. Um, bearing in mind, obviously he'd only paid a tra- the significant transfer fee for um, for the, the previous Inter fullback. Um, I think it's important then as a result to go, well, you know, h- how are PSG going to comply uh, with FFP? And um, the short answer is, I'm not entirely sure. Um but the, the context of all of this, obviously, is financial fair play. And if we go very briefly back to the, the formation of um, FFP and the, the historic uh, limits, the, the principles were effectively that um, clubs uh, weren't able to make um, a greater loss um, of 30 million euros over a rolling um, three-year period. Now, pandemic hits and um, obviously revenues fall um, astronomically and again the opportunity cost of additional revenues um for clubs is hit significantly as well so then what happens as a result um you wave through um the ff um, mechanism effectively explain that clubs can make uh, losses exceeding the 30 million over the three year period so long as it was caused by the falls in revenues because of you know the pandemic shutdown and and that clubs will be able to cope with their own increased losses but you know effectively owners have to put money in through loans or um, shares or otherwise so um, you know the technical detail is actually that one of the accounting periods is going to be assessed over a two-year period rather than a one-year period but obviously there's going to be a lot more leeway given by UEFA so The short answer is I'm still not entirely sure because I'm not sure it's just so easy to say, well, FFP is dead because what we are going to talk about in a few minutes on what's been reported? Um, So I believe that whilst there has been some some relaxation and the counterfactual will be, well, we lost this amount of money because of COVID and we lost out on having this amount of increased revenue because of COVID too. um, There is going to be um, a lot of, um, you know, mathematical gymnastics that are going to pretend. But at the same time, PSG are adding significant um, costs to their bottom line, and who knows what you know additional revenues they're going to be at. But I think on that front, and we'll we'll talk about sort of the next evolution. You know, I think even a year ago, UEFA were talking about evolutionary step of UEFA uh, of FFP potentially away from loss related matters, um, and and looking back at past accounting seasons to more real time um, accounting to more potentially um, salary cost controls for salary caps along with luxury taxes. And, you know, fast forward to a few weeks ago now, um, you know, or even the last few days has been reported in in a number of um, sources that UEFA are going to be rejigging their FFP regulations potentially quite significantly after stakeholder consultation, um, that that there are quite... um, you know important systemic changes coming for the ffp regime but my view at the moment is the same regime is basically in place which is then going to lead to some interesting submissions i think from from teams like psg
0: yeah definitely i think um the the, one of the big challenges as well is that different leagues were affected in different ways so psg's season was curtailed um you know the 1920 season was curtailed and then they've obviously had um, huge issues with with uh, various broadcasters being able to fulfil and not fulfil contracts. And I think um, that's obviously put a lot of pressure on clubs in different countries. Where, you know, Premier League clubs have generally been relatively well insulated, I suppose, um, apart from their, their matchday income. Uh, but let's get on to the salary caps um, issue and topic. I think it's really interesting because obviously you go up a level and you question whether FFP is really needed, whether cost control is really needed. Um, but actually you know, it, taking the perspective of the clubs, if you look at the European, the failed European Super League plans, that you always have to kind of prefix it with, with failed or ill-fated or however else you want to want to put it. But it was really interesting that one of the most kind of cogent aspects of their plans was actually the financial regulation and the fact that clubs would only be allowed to spend uh, up to 55% of their their revenues. Um, you know, the sporting aspects are actually incredibly undercooked, but the financial aspects, you know, was something that they had thought long and hard about. And, and you yeah, know, the ownerships of those clubs were very conscious of the fact that for every dollar they've been or pound or euro they've been earning in in revenue over the last 15 20 25 years most of that has been going straight into wages um and so you know cost control remains forefront of mind and i think you know it's forefront of mind for owners it's therefore forefront of mind for UEFA because they want their clubs having ownership groups that are kind of looking after the club in the long term so I guess that that approach is potentially being mirrored by some of the in what we're seeing in some of the reports, Dan, in terms of UEFA potentially exploring a, a, a soft what's probably known as a soft salary cap, i.e. it's based on your own revenues as opposed to a hard salary cap, which is based on a specific number.
1: Yeah, exactly right. And um, interestingly it should be noted that one of the the FFP financial red flag indicators is whether wage to turnover is above i think it's above 70 percent now as you mentioned um ill-fated is right esl um, reports were that clubs were basically limited to no more than you're exactly right 55 percent of their income revenues on that could go on salaries agents fees and transfers apparently you know which is pretty significant in truth depending obviously on what the the definition of um, um of income revenues actually becomes so you know when you take that into account um and where you then uh, pivot away from three years worth of rolling accounts to understand that the, the the losses or profits that a, a club is actually making, to you know the new proposals with with exactly as you said so effectively soft salary cap with luxury tax, you know we're getting into the realms of U.S. sports here, which I know that you know you've you've spent a lot you 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 do a lot of time and analysis and thinking about more generally, but yeah, exactly right. Um, FFP, it seems, is going to go in a slightly different direction. And if the reports are um, correct, uh, um, The Times were reporting that um, that for clubs participating in European competition, they'd be limited to spending a fixed percentage of their revenue, which is supposedly, which is reported to be 70% um, on salaries. So bearing in mind that salaries, it's not in relation to agents and not in relation to transfers as well. So I'm always interested to see actually what salary cap Cost control actually covers, and the other point obviously is scope. Because, um, interestingly, again, when the FFP regs came in a, a decade or so ago, just over, uh, one issue was you know th- there's one rule for one and one rule for another in terms of this was only really for clubs participating in Champions League and Europa League at the time competition or those that were aspiring to to do that. Um, the question now is is that you know, the the salary cap and potential, um, you know, luxury taxes for those clubs, you know, ultimately it's in a way um, to only be relevant to a certain number of clubs in each league. The real and interesting question, I think, is whether then domestic leagues incorporate similar types of controls or keep their licensing and cost control provisions as they currently are um, because of the degree that they're working or, or not working. But, yeah, oh, I'd be really interested in your thoughts generally on, um, yeah, sal- salary cap, luxury tax issues. Wh- where do you generally stand on things?
0: Yeah, I firstly I think the motivation for the move from the kind of permitted losses to, um, you know, wage spending as a portion of revenues is, is motivated by simplicity. I think there's a lot of, as we've seen, debated. You know, a lot of gymnastics that can be done around uh, permitted losses, whereas this is designed to be a simple approach that's quite easy to to monitor and track i question I, I think it is simpler but i question is um, the ability of uh of leagues UEFA, to, to monitor it just on the experience of the efl who in league one and league two have had a very similar cap over the last few years pre-covid and have really struggled to implement it basically um because it's it's still a difficult thing to be tracking in live um you know over the course of a season um the other reservation i have around soft caps is although perhaps a luxury tax gets around this is um kind of locking in the the status quo which is always this perennial issue with with cost control Is to what degree do you kind of promote you know the ability of a team to kind of rise up and down fall up and down the pyramid um, versus you know trying to make them sustainable and you know clearly if clubs are only able to spend x percent let's say seventy percent of their revenues then you know a club with fifty percent of the revenues of another club can only spend fifty percent of of the wages even if they've um, kind of got the you know, ownership that wants to spend that amount. Um, so that—that's, I suppose, the, the kind of thinking on the luxury tax we'll get onto. Um, but it does, you know, it does protect. I think a, a certain strata of, of club potentially, which which isn't always what what you want. But it's not an easy one-time pick, really.
1: I just think very briefly and we'll get onto the luxury tax issue. I think as well. But I th- I think I think that sort of aspirational competitive balance element to it. I think is my for you know my first thoughts when I read this was. It actually makes things a little bit more accessible, I think, in truth, in that obviously then if there is a salary cap with a luxury tax element to it, then it does allow wealthy owners to spend beyond the club's income, but then obviously only if they're willing to pay the, the luxury tax at whatever rates that is over and above. So I, I, I wonder whether just from a um, technical and from a practical perspective, that take some way uh, give some way or leeway rather to the suggestion that the drawbridge basically is uh, pulled up under the old under the current and uh, ffp regime where it's it's you know based break even based on costs and revenues whereas you could get very wealthy owners say well that's fine we're going to live up to the um uh, salary cap limit but we're happy to spend up to uh, whatever 120% of our revenues for and then pay the luxury tax accordingly which can be de- redistributed because that we believe is the way that we're going to you know um, push on on field in the in the short to medium term yeah and I think
0: that I, I think that is a good solution because I worry you know that didn't exist in the EFL and it was poorly monitored and you know poorly regulated and so on and led to you know clubs overspending and so on so I, I like the the concept of it I think part of the reason you know the alternative to a soft salary cap is a hard salary cap i.e set it at a level of whatever uh, you know uh, 400 million a year or or whatever that means that any club in the world you know whether you're Barcelona or whether you're I don't know Wiccan Wanderers you can spend you know 400 million a year on on salaries just no more I think the reason I understand the reason that that is not being explored is just from a legal point of view um the European Commission is less likely to allow something like that compared to the, the soft salary cap. Um, and and it, interestingly, obviously, the, the hard salary cap that they tried to implement in the EFL didn't um, didn't pass a legal challenge either in terms of the, I forget the numbers, but about two and a half million a year in League uh, 1 and about 1.3 or 1.2 in, in League 2. So, uh, uh, yeah, my per- I obviously quite like the idea of a hard cap just as a kind of complete leveller. It creates a bit of a ceiling uh, at the top end. doesn't mean uh, I can't earn... You know, a lot of money because it's not a cap at an individual level; it's a cap at a team level. Um, but totally understand the kind of motivations for, for having a softer cap. Um, to talk talk through the reports on on how the the luxury tax is being potentially explored.
1: Yeah, it. it um, I was just actually interested in your thoughts on on hard versus soft. If that's all right for just just to touch on a, on, a, on a minute or so longer, because. Interestingly, I I just wonder whether in addition to all of that, then, you know, the MLS is a really interesting case study to a degree of um, of players coming inside and outside of designated positions of limitations of subsidies or, you know, other things um, and having designated players. I just wonder whether, you know, part of this salary cap might also include, as it does in rugby, particular players falling outside of the cap. Particular credits for certain types of positive incentive behaviours, that it's not going to be just as hard or soft as a, this is going to be the percentage of um, salaries. I wonder if it's promoting, um, you know, youth and academy players might actually have some type of credit on um, cap in other ways. And in the same way, um, posit- uh, negative behaviours or particular types of sanctions might actually decrease cap just as, you know, in a... In a in a dissimilar but similar way La Liga has imposed on, on Barcelona for different reasons um, in terms of a wage number. But, you know, so I, I just wonder whether it's um, there's going to be lots of different nuances that UEFA can bring to bear from a number of other sports, including US sport, including, you know, rugby, including other types of football iterations and um, and then feeding that into, you know, what the the luxury tax proposal might be. So that the reports are that it's... Um, on a sliding scale where exceeding the cap up to uh, 20% would mean clubs paying the equivalent amount of the overspend, but anything over that 20% would be 1.5 or two times um, potentially the amount. And, you know, you have seen that in, uh, in similar ways in uh, MLB and and NBA in in the US. I think there's going to be a really, really interesting period now where, you know, that consultation is going to go ahead ahead with a lot of stakeholders to try and understand how hard or soft or how nuanced, um, or pragmatic or otherwise that um, uh, wage cap is actually going to be in practice. Um, and then how that luxury tax is going to be calculated. And then even more importantly, which I think should be a really interesting one, is then how that luxury tax is distributed. Is it going to be distributed amongst the compliant Champions League and Europa League and, um, and conference league clubs? Is it going to be wider than that? Um, is it going to go to other leagues, for example, for solidarity and redistribution methods? All of those types of mechanisms, I think, are going to um, be, be, be really interested to see how they you know, ultimately um, unpick
0: yeah, I think that'll be really interesting. Actually, how how it's redistributed. Um, I was trying to do some numbers in my head as to what kind of amounts we might be talking about here. Um, and I think at an individual club level, you're probably only talking about not say only, but t- talking about the region of kind of five to fifteen million euros, which isn't you know, it's not a huge amount when distributed amongst a really wide range of clubs. Um, but it could be interesting when it's distributed to um, to kind of fellow competitors, so in the Champions League and so on. So I think that's um, yeah, it will be one to watch. I'd personally caution against going down the MLS route. Um, you know, anyone who has worked with MLS teams or, or looked at the MLS rulebook will know how much of a kind of stacking of Jenga blocks those rules and regs are around the different types of players and so on. And I think part of the issue we've had with FFP, and particularly options of the big clubs like PSG and Man City, is the lack of transparency in some ways particularly for fans um you know the 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 real lack of understanding as to what the breaches are you know what is you know market rate sponsorship income and all, all that type of thing and i fear that if you end up going down a route of trying to create rules that have this type of play can go over these type of players are exempt but perhaps with the exception of maybe young players being exempt i think it, you run into danger of having that that lack of transparency again and i actually think that's been one of the the great um what's it great but one of the kind of compelling aspects of this whole barcelona issue over the last few few weeks and months is that it's been very clear they've got to hit this percentage of, of revenue of wages and they've just got to get get it down and i everyone understands that problem and, and no one's actually really got any uh, other than barcelona obviously but no one no one no fans got a real issue with the kind of rules and regs and i, I actually think as this is about the business of football football is for fans and and you've got to set up the um the governance around the game that fans can kind of engage with and doesn't they don't feel as unfair in any way or penalizing um clubs in any way so yeah i think it will be i think this is a good step um you know this the move towards a a simpler ruling system um but yeah i i would caution against kind of over-engineering it because i um yeah, I've seen in MLS that it can be quite it can be quite awkward and tricky to newcomers in MLS, which is not what you want. Totally agree, and just very briefly on that
1: transparency point, I, I am absolutely um, um, sure that well, not sure, I, I'm I'm confident, and hopefully that will continue to be the case. That you know, I'm. It's really important for for confidence in the system that decisions are made public. You know, I still think there's a lot of um, You know, we need to look at there's a recent Newcastle decision, which was um, appealed in the High Court in the UK, whereby um, a lot of parties still wanted the decision to be confidential because it was um, in confidential arbitration. So, um, you know, the same with, you know, UEFA, CAS, FIFA awards. You know, I, th- I think to a degree that transparency um, is required not only to show that, you know, justice is being done and that the right decisions are being made, but though that it becomes accessible for people to be able to understand why things are being done in a particular way. And I think that's, that's crucial in a lot of ways. Yeah, I completely agree. All
0: right. Well, yeah. Hopefully you managed to make football finance and regulations um, interesting. People. Uh, yeah, we'll, we'll catch you next week, Dan.
1: Perfect. Thanks, Bob. Cheers. Thanks for listening. You can follow me on Twitter, TikTok and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website, danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast, like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably also like my book, Dundeal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally, and via Audible. All links are in the podcast show notes. Lastly, the podcast is powered by Thirteen, which is a fashion brand I've started. All proceeds go towards cancer charity research, and particularly the stellar work done by John Krell, who has helped my mum through some difficult times over the last few years. You can take a look at the merch, and hopefully buy a t-shirt, hoodie, cap, or all three. Please do spread the word and go to 13shop.co.uk That's 13shop.co.uk Thanks for listening.